sister Know the water's sweet But blood is thicker Welcome to the Reform Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm gonna have a brother? <laughs> I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on, Tony? Not much. Not much. How about you? Not much. Just soaking in the new Christmas season. It seems like everything changes so fast, and now there's Christmas music everywhere. Yes. Well, we've been listening to Christmas music since, like, April. (laughs) Your sister is a fiend with this stuff. Like we started watching Christmas movies or she started watching Christmas movies and I started reading books while she watched Christmas movies about a month and a half ago. And I'm not even exaggerating. I totally believe that because yeah. the, so the Christmas music thing is like, and we'll talk about this later, but this is like a, such a strange thing because it comes and goes like so quickly, you know, like after Thanksgiving, it's just the radio start to play it. And then on like the 26th, it's like gone. Like it never even happened. Yeah, I I remember when I was a kid, like, listening to Christmas music on the radio, and I really felt like it actually persisted a lot longer after Christmas. And I don't know if it actually did or if it was just, like, by the time I got to Christmas, I was so sick of the Christmas music that I was ready for it to be done. Yeah, I have no idea. It's just the strangest thing. I think about that every year. It's, like, the strangest thing. It's, like, it's been disavowed on the 26th, and we just go on with our lives, which... Maybe it's a commentary in our culture, but either way. Yeah, maybe. I actually have a theory, and I read something online that kind of sparked this. I have a theory about why Christmas decorations and stuff have been going up earlier and earlier every year. It seems like it seems like I don't remember them going up as early as they do now. But I think the rise of artificial Christmas trees actually brought this about, right? So, like, before you had natural Christmas trees and artificial ones didn't exist. So even, like, places that sold decorations – they couldn't really bring them out because nobody would buy them until they got their tree up. But like now that you can buy a Christmas tree and you can put it up whenever you want, they can start putting out decorations in like October and people are like, oh yeah, I need to get started on my decorating. So you're basically saying it's like a conspiracy of fake furs. Um, I don't think it was like a conspiracy. <laughs> I just think like they can do it now. Like people can decorate with their, like they can make their house look like Christmas, legitimately look like Christmas in July if they want. We just couldn't do that. I mean, I guess you could, but you wouldn't have a tree at Christmas time because it'd be all dead and rotten. Which is like the central focal piece of most Christmas holiday decorating is the tree. So Yeah, the evergreen stuff. I'm done with that. That's like a unique theory. Yeah, I think there's probably something to it. So if I if I cared more, I could probably do a PhD at some school on like the history of Christmas trees and the transition of holiday decoration to earlier in the season yeah that sounds like some serious like sociological jam right there like somebody could really get after that hard so if somebody's out there listening and wants to write a paper on that i would really be interested to read it yeah yeah that would be pretty sweet footnote us yes so what are we talking about tonight jesse so because we're entering this wonderful season of anticipating the birth of christ I thought it would be great to talk a little bit about Advent, what it is and why certain people celebrate it, what it encapsulates. And, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of different churches have different traditions. And Advent, even like the word Advent calendar, like for instance, my wife and I were having a conversation recently 
And for her, like the word advent meant tiny pieces of chocolate embedded in a calendar. So even like the word is familiar, but trying to understand and discern what it actually means and why it's important. I just thought that'd be an interesting conversation. Yeah, I don't even remember. I don't think I even had heard of Advent until well after I became a Christian, um, which is weird because I became a Christian in a Lutheran church and we never did Advent. It was just really strange. It just never was a thing that we really did. That's interesting. Shout out to Lutherans. Yeah, well, and the Lutherans definitely celebrate Advent. So yeah, what, sure. what is Advent for our listeners that maybe don't know? So traditionally in the church calendar, Advent was set aside as the four weeks prior to Christmas itself. And Advent literally means, you know, a coming or anticipation or longing. So it was this time that the church set aside to purposely be in thought and in meditation about the longing for the Savior. And then in the same way, basically the 12 days after Christmas, which is often called Christmas tide, is the real celebration of the actual coming of the Savior. So there's lots of implications and there's four separate weeks. And oftentimes it, the central piece of its representation, at least of Advent, is that there'll be this Advent wreath with four different candles and the colors are sometimes different, but usually they're three purple candles and one pink candle. And they all represent something of significance that is really to focus your mind for that particular week on meditating in preparation for Advent. So that's kind of the... I don't know, the thumb, thumbnail sketch. Is that fair? That is fair. So before we jump into the topic, I do want to acknowledge, um, especially since this is a self-consciously reformed podcast, um, there are a large portion of the reformed uh, community that that would say we shouldn't do any sort of Christmas or Advent celebration. Um, I don't know that I would say it's a huge population, but historically speaking, the Reformed have rejected um, things like Christmas and celebrating Advent. Um, not entirely, but um, especially sort of in the Scottish uh, lines of thinking. And um, I want to acknowledge that. So there are going to be people who disagree with the fact that we're even talking about this. For sure. But um, before we get in, I do want to just kind of give a little bit of a disclaimer and maybe a little bit of an apologetic uh, from a reform perspective. Because I think one thing that happens this time of year, and I, I know I see it happening online all the time, is there's kind of like the pro-Christmas camp and there's the anti-Christmas camp. And they go at each other like they're Trump supporters and Hillary supporters, and they just beat on each other online. Um, and the anti-Christmas camp kind of wants to say, like, well, if you're really reformed, then you won't celebrate Christmas. Um, and that just isn't – it just isn't the case. So um, just taking a quick look, um, you know, the, the reform tend to look at these confessional documents that were written in the um, 16th and 17th century and kind of the, the culmination of reform theology in confessional form is the Westminster Confession of Faith. And we've talked about that before. And uh, in Chapter 21, uh, Item 5 – uh, it talks about the different ways that people, um, that, that God's people worship him. And it's a little bit weird to pick one article out of the middle and even then just part of that article. But I want to do that for a second. Um, so it talks about the different ways that people ordinarily uh, worship God through prayer, preaching, um, the administration of the sacraments, um, etc. And then it says, beside religious oaths, vows, solemn fasting, and thanksgiving upon special occasions, which are in their several times and seasons to be used in a holy and religious manner. So it's saying that beside the ordinary worship of God, the, the regular week in and week out Lord's Day celebration, um, and then the, the daily rhythm of prayer and um, worship that all Christians should participate in. 
There's also these special times that the church can declare. Um, and they, they, you know, the Westminster Confession has these footnotes um, where they, they cite scripture. And it's not necessarily a direct proof text, but it's more like if you're wanting to know where we got this idea, this is where you start exegetically. And one of the texts that they cite here is uh, out of Esther um, chapter 9, starting in verse 20. It says, Mordecai recorded these things and sent a letter to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the months that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So what the, the passage here is saying is that the, you know, the Jews were saved from this plot uh, by the, you know, the bravery of Esther and by sort of the um, strategic mind of Mordecai. Um, obviously, God's providence is working in that. And Mordecai sends out this letter and he obligates all of the Jews to celebrate this feast, um, which is for Thanksgiving. It's made, it, the ESV translates as a holiday. I don't know that's a great translation. Literally, it's just like a good day. So they celebrate it, but they celebrate it year after year on the same day. Um, and the point of this and the reason that the Westminster divines um, cite this passage is they're saying that God's people have the authority particularly the people in leadership in God's church, have the authority to set aside days of thanksgiving to celebrate things that happen in um, in God's redemptive plan, but also just in history. So last week we talked about Thanksgiving, and we had we actually had this exact same discussion, but the recording issue um, deleted it. Um, but Thanksgiving was one of those examples. It was set aside by God's people in order to celebrate that. And then later when George Washington made it an official uh, national holiday. He actually cited the same passage in some of his letters to point out that God's people have been doing this throughout history. So um, I think the people who want to look at the Westminster Confession and want to say that we can't ever celebrate, even in a religious manner, um, we can't ever celebrate anything besides the Lord's Day. I don't think they're reading this clearly. And um, just to kind of put some some more teeth to that, and then we can move on, is um, I want to just read a quote here. It's from the Common Book of Prayer, which was amended by Presbyterian ministers in 1661. And it says, The devout recognition with appropriate services on the weekdays commonly called Christmas Day, Good Friday, and Ascension Day is in accordance with Presbyterian and Catholic usage, lowercase c, Catholic. Their addition to the ordinary service is left wholly discretionary. And um, it was signed by several men, um, and many of those went on to be members of the Westminster Assembly 15 years later. So we have people who were on the Westminster Assembly who put their name down saying we could celebrate Christmas Day, we could celebrate Good Friday, and we could celebrate Ascension Day. So um, I really think just historically speaking, we don't you don't have a foot to stand on to say that the entire Westminster Assembly was opposed to celebrating Christmas. It just doesn't work. We have record of them saying it's wholly discretionary. Now, where it becomes a problem, and I think um, we would agree with this, is when it becomes obligatory. Right. When the church says you have to celebrate this, specific thing that's not instituted in scripture and you have to do it on a certain day and you have to do certain things um, or you're somehow not not keeping God's law, that's when it becomes a problem. When you set it aside as a holy day that's specially holy apart from the Lord's day, um, that, that I think does become a problem. Now there's an argument to make that 
can you really worship God um, in a way on a particular day and not be setting it aside as a holy day? I guess that's an argument that might come up, um, but we can kind of talk about that a different week if we, you know, if we get some feedback that that's something people want to explore a little bit more in the Facebook group. Yeah, there's definitely strong opinions on either side. There's all, there's good historical ground to stand on. And I, I think you're probably like me in this, that I do respect and like to hear the conviction that people have for both sides and whether or not to. It's basically the keep Christ out of Christmas or keep Christ in Christmas. And it's interesting that yeah. there are strong and I think very cogent, wonderful pastoral reasons for both those. But it really flows from both groups have hearts that are really concerned with loving Jesus and honoring him appropriately. So I think at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. Yeah, absolutely. And this year, I think, too, um, the tensions are running even a little bit yes. higher because Christmas falls on the Lord's on Day. On the Lord's Day. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, people, every church um, handles Christmas and what to do on a, you know, on a year where Christmas falls on the Lord's Day a little bit differently. And, um, you know, different congregations make different decisions and sometimes they make good decisions. Sometimes they make bad decisions. Um, and it's not, it's not really my place to comment on an individual church's decision as to whether that was a good thing to do or not to do. Um, you know, obviously there are some things that are just completely out of bounds. Um, you know, if you turn your Christmas service into just a chance to give out candy canes and Santa is preaching from the pulpit, I don't think that's a great idea. Um, but, you know, if your church has made a decision that maybe um, it's just not uh, not reasonable to meet um, because there's not going to be a congregation to meet on the Lord's Day because everyone's traveling, um, you know, and saying, well, the pastor doesn't need to preach to an empty room. Um, that That's okay, I think. Um, I think every church has to make the decision that they're going to make and, um I really think that people who want to sort of stand back and make judgments on other congregations for those decisions need to kind of reevaluate whether that's, you know, really the best use of their time. Sure. We definitely need a lot more charity there with each other. Right. And I, my question would be, what kind of events would have to take place such that Santa would be preaching from the pulpit? I don't know. Well, I mean, Santa probably did preach from the pulpit in real life. Um, True. You know, he was a bishop, so he probably did a little bit of preaching here and there between punching heretics and giving out candy and toys. But um, we can talk about St. Nicholas maybe next week. We'll we'll we we definitely should because we could yeah we could run a train on that right now. I've got all kinds of things to say about that. But I like I like to say that St. Nicholas is the patron saint of discernment bloggers. I like that. Yeah, there, so we'll uh, we'll see how that goes. There should be oh, this is gonna be controversial. There should be medals that just depict him punching people in the face. Yeah, well, spoiler alert, that probably didn't actually happen. I know, but, sad. None, but nonetheless, it would still be great. It would be good. Let's let's get on that for next year. We could make millions. I love that. Also, I love that we're spoiler alerting history. Yeah, that's true. We are spoiler alerting history. <laughs> It's all good. (laughs) We are the most up-to-date podcast you will ever listen to. Yeah, just in case, like, somehow there's, like, a time traveler listening to this and they haven't experienced that yet, you know, like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, like podcast jump to super nerd level ultra. (laughs) That's okay. That's that's our style. So one of the reasons why I like Advent is it does bring about, like, a nice – it draws your mind into a nice, wonderful rhythm – that stands on history. And at least in my opinion, it to me seems like an extension of some of that wonderful cadence that God gives us where we're going out and working. And on the Lord's day, we're coming in 
and we're worshiping and we're fellowshipping and we're resting and then we're going back out. So I love that the calendar is there really, as you said, as a tool to help us renew our minds, give us a little bit of focus because things will just pass, at least for me, things will just pass by and get too sucked into unwittingly just all the sentimentality of the season. So I do love that this is a call to slow down, uh, to stop, to meditate and metabolize in preparation for Christmas, which is something that I think we all can just be honest, like at least may struggle to do no matter what our responsibilities or obligations we have in the season. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, just sort of thinking about the way a liturgical calendar functions, um, you know, I listened to a podcast with um, Peter Lightheart and James Jordan, not because I think that they have um, a lot of great things to say and some of their theology is really terrible. So we'll just get that out of the way. But one of the things that I heard them say that I thought really was insightful is that the the church calendar with its lectionaries, which a lectionary is just a sort of a list of readings and the church um, churches that use lectionaries read those readings out loud throughout the year. And so you're exposed to the whole scriptures over the course of a year or a three-year cycle. And they pointed out that like the lectionary is set up to coincide with the church calendar in such a way where you're kind of progressing through the year and you get to sort of that midpoint or that early part of the year and you hit Lent and you hit Easter and you kind of, you come down the same way that the Old Testament does. You kind of come down into judgment and then you come up into the resurrection. And then as you progress from there through Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, you kind of come into this waiting period before Christmas, which is historically supposed to be not just waiting for the birth of Christ and reflecting on that, but waiting for Christ's second coming. So the whole church calendar, um, the liturgical calendar, is designed to sort of move you through redemptive history each year, which I think is something that's really valuable because a lot of Christians don't really think through that cycle. They don't live in right a cycle on. of understanding the scriptural, um, the scriptural kind of uh, cadence of reflecting on the death and resurrection of Christ and sort of being brought down and then brought back up by the gospel and then progressing towards our ultimate goal. And I just think that that's a really helpful um, structure for Christians to have. And this season of Advent is so great for that because you really are, I don't know about you, I guess, I don't think I like have formally had that seasonal affective disorder thing, but I work in a hospital and I work in the basement. So it's dark when I get to work and then I go down in the basement and then it's dark when I get out of work and I drive home in the dark and I go to sleep in the dark and I wake up in the dark and I'm downstairs in the basement for most of the day when it's sunny. And so in the middle of the winter here, we're heading towards the darkest time of the year, but we're starting to celebrate what will be the most glorious light that there is. And I think for me, that's just a really an encouraging kind of a thing to, to remember during this part of the year. It is so good to have something like the liturgical calendar, which is a tool for us to rehearse that big picture of the gospel. I love the way that you said that. that that's impactful for me because you know, like Advent is essentially like the beginning of the liturgical calendar. And it's a wonderful time and space to be a little bit more austere than we normally would be during like the cultural Christmas season. So what I mean by that is like generally it was, or at least historically, it was kind of focused on as a time of commingling penitence and joy. So this idea that we should lean into suffering a little bit more, that we should recognize that things aren't just tolerable in our world and that there's a tremendous amount of injustice and sin and selfishness, and we are at the top of that pile, and that we are groaning godwardly 
for a Messiah and a Redeemer. So, and it, like you said, it's both this wonderful combination of looking back. So just as it's echoing the Israelites looking back to their time of being in bondage and being released, and they were looking for the Messiah, we are looking at the first coming with a great amount of joy, understanding that the promise is secure because of that, but then also turning our eyes to the future and saying, you know, come Lord Jesus. Like we recognize that people are suffering and there's disease and we are so much destruction. And what we desperately want is to celebrate your arrival. So what Advent, at least like these weeks have meant for me is that I think actually when we lean into that, way more than we normally do because there's a sentimentality and emotionalism about Christmas that, you know, good cheer toward men and peace on earth and and all of that is fine. Except that if we just go past the longing, like the season of really aching and pining for savior because things are wrong and we are wrongheaded, it makes tasting the joy of Christ's birth and knowing that the second coming is just around the corner so much sweeter because we've tasted the bitterness of suffering, which still exists in our world. So I I think if we just pass it by too quickly, it really makes the joy of Christmas a little bit more meager than it should be. Yeah. And um, just real quick, I had a thought and I want to get it out there before I forget about it. Totally unrelated. If you're a parent and you're listening to this podcast and you have your kids around, it's possible that Jesse and I may spoil some Christmas surprises for you. So you may want to turn the podcast off. Uh, when your kids are around. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what I mean. So, um, but yeah, I think everything that you just said about uh, the way that Advent should impact us, um, I think it's just really, you know, I kind of, I don't want to say resent, but I kind of like lament, lament is a better term. I lament that I didn't have this cycle in my my Christian life before. Um, You know, and, and I think humans are built... Um, you know, when you think about the Sabbath and you think about that cyclical nature to the way that God has built us and has um, defined how we relate to him, we're built for cycles. We're built for this kind of repetitive um, existence. And we will continue to have this repetitive existence in eternity. It's not like this um, this seven-day cycle is going to end, right? The Sabbath is built into the fabric of creation and the new creation Um, presumably we'll have the same kind of cycle. And I think for me, like having this time during the the lead into Christmas to really just um, lock in to um, the idea that Christ came to live for me, um, to come and to live the righteous life that I could not, um, without necessarily spending as much time focusing on the death of Christ to come. Um, I think sometimes, um, sometimes evangelicals and especially reformed Christians, um, even though I think reformed Christians should be the last people to do it, we forget to celebrate that Christ had an active obedience. Um, and we get so caught up celebrating that Christ had a passive obedience. And what I mean by that, um, have we talked about active and passive obedience yet? No, not yet. I'm sure that I think we might have, but, um, the, the active obedience of Christ is, Christ's positive righteousness. It's him obeying and fulfilling the law. It's him coming and being obedient to the Father's will and doing things that causes the Father's delight. Um, And then that delight is then granted to us in imputation. Um, The the passive obedience is the things that Christ suffers. Um, Passive as in like suffering, not passive as in like doesn't act and things happen to him. Um, Passive related to the word passion um, or pathos. 
is those that's the passive aspect and that's what we talk about and what we look at when we think about lent and um good friday but to take time to reflect on the life of christ which started with his birth the human life of christ which started with his um, conception and birth and everything that we talk about and celebrate during advent and going to christmas um, it's a really helpful time of year for me to not rush to the cross to be able to sort of um, rest in the active obedience of Christ, as well as um, you know, looking forward to the passive obedience of Christ. That's well said. That, that's what makes this season so beautiful, and just the fact that we can continue all our life long to learn into to look into that, to learn a little bit more about it, and it's just like so deeply and beautifully layered. I mean, you just peel yeah. back a layer, and you can appreciate more and more as as God gives us uh, measured and discernment and understanding, and see that. I mean, you're right. A lot of times we go straight to the death of Christ, which is no doubt important. But unless that righteous life was lived under the law and in perfect obedience in such a way that it's not Jesus like relying on his godly attributes to get him right. through, but he's relying on the spirit, the same Holy Spirit that's given to us to move forward through temptation and to perform perfect obedience that makes that sacrifice so precious. But it's a, it is a life lived in perfect devotion to God, you know, the second Adam, obviously what, what it was always yeah. meant to be here. We have Jesus doing that perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I think, uh, you know, we can kind of move on to some of those questions we had in the Facebook group. Um, cause you know, we got, we got a good, uh, three more weeks of Advent here and we're going to have lots of discussion about it. So I don't want to exhaust all of it tonight. Um, but yeah, I just, I love this time of year. Um, even though like the days are getting shorter and it's getting colder and I'm, you know, I'm looking forward and seeing negative temperatures and things on the horizon and, um, to just think about what Christ did in coming to earth to, to enter into humiliation, um, and then live under the law and to be exalted on our behalf is just, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know what more beautiful theology there could be. It's glorious. And I was just reading some John Owen recently, and he brought to my mind something that I hadn't really considered in the way he articulated it. And that was he was saying, you've got to imagine as best you can that God is not only infinitely greater, but infinitely separate from us. Yeah. And he, of course, is a being that is not contingent. You know, we are created. He's more real than even we are because he is the one that is self-existent and we have been created by him. And so he's making this argument that if you think about this infinite space in whatever way you can conceptualize in your mind, it is beyond belief that an infinite being would take any interest in something finite just by way of the separation of these two things in every conceivable way. So I was just really kind of, I just got up from that and, and wanted to like run around the neighborhood because I, I just didn't even know what to do with how amazing just that thought is that infiniteness, not just contained in a finite being, but the sheer interest of God, the continued interest of God through Jesus Christ is just phenomenal. So we should probably say that briefly that this first week of Advent is generally dedicated to focusing on the prophecy of Christ, just the, yeah. the promises contained in the scripture. And uh, what I love about that is that starts like, so here's what I love about this. So God in his infinite wisdom and his working out his mighty plan of salvation by his outstretched arm I love that the solution happens right after the problem, which is right in Genesis 3, which yeah. I love. So that first, that first promise, the first promise of 
that things will be made right, which is 315. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I love that on the very day that everything falls apart, so to speak, there is God providing the plan. And it's that kind of looking back and mourning the fact that we have disobeyed God and that we have um, been his enemies, that we are rebellious, that God did not forget us or even leave us for a second from the very beginning, uh, but was always working out his plan. I just love that. Yeah. And, and, you know, the prophecies of Christ, they continue through the whole Bible. So, um, you know, in our church through Advent, we're doing um, kind of portraits of, of Advent. So we're looking at different people who were important kind of in the time leading up to Christ. Um, and we looked at John the Baptist today. And um, one of the things we looked at was um, the, the song or the, the prophecy that Zechariah speaks um, when his tongue is loose, when he, you know, when John is born. And um, uh, the, the angel, actually, when he comes to talk to him is what we were looking at, too. And he, he says that John will turn the hearts of Israel back to God. And that's a prophecy in uh, Deuteronomy 30, I think, where, you know, it says that once, once you've sinned and you've been cast out of God's presence, that when, you, uh, when he turns his heart back or when he turns your heart back to him, um, that, that, that will be kind of the beginning of the restoration of all things. And so even to think that like people apart from, you know, Christ himself were included in this prophecy. Um, John the Baptist is included in this prophecy. Um, you know, Mary is included in this prophecy. Um, the wise men are included in this prophecy. There's all of these right. different themes, prophetic themes that are weaving their way through the old Testament. And they come to this culmination you know, in a sleepy town in Bethlehem, in a busy season during a census, um, when there's, you know, we can we can talk about like no room at the end and all that stuff, and that'll be an interesting conversation. But when you boil it all down, there was no space for Mary and Joseph where there should have been space for them. Just like in most cases, there's no space for Jesus in our lives when there should be space. So I think, you know, just to not to get too preachy here, but I think one of the things we, we all really need to focus on during Christmas is not letting the chaos that sort of attends this season. Um, you know, I used to work retail, and so it was like nonstop after Black Friday until like a week and a half after Christmas, and then again for like a week after um, after Christmas because of return season. And it was like nothing happened except being all consumed with work. Um, but it seems like even in other other industries and other sectors, it seems like this part of the year is just inherently busier. So, you know, Christ can get very crowded out of our lives when we add all this busyness and this chaos. So taking time to recognize, um, not to get like allegorical, I don't want to do that, but to recognize that like part of the Christmas story in the in the Gospels is that there isn't room for Jesus where there should be room. Um, you know, when you actually look at the language, the, the upper or the, the um, no room in the inn really probably means like no room in the guest room. There was no guest room for Mary and Joseph. They were probably going to Joseph's family and because other family was coming into town, there was no space for them in the guest room that should have been set aside for them. And the person who should have gotten that should have been the pregnant woman. But there was no space by the time they got there. And so, you know, when we, you know, we talk about like Christmas hymns that say like prepare him room. 
um, prepare room in your hearts for Christ. Um, you know, this season is about anticipating Christ coming and making space in your life where there should be space and not not crowding Jesus out. If you want to talk about putting the Christ back into Christmas, that's what we need to do. Right. It's not about like making sure there's little crosses on Starbucks cups or whatever kind of stupid controversy there is this year about the Starbucks cup. Um, it's about preparing our hearts preparing our lives and really focusing in on the fact that Christ became incarnate for our sake, for us and our salvation. He became man, you know, as the Nicene Creed says. And that's why I love Advent so much because it does help us to make that space. And I think whether or not you do that corporately in your church, or if you want to do that in your own home, I highly encourage you. You can just Google it. There's tons of wonderful resources, lots of people, uh, trustworthy people writing, you know, devotionals for this period. But I would just uh, yeah encourage you to make this a time of really leaning in in a kind of austere way and considering yeah. the suffering of the world and what it means to long for a Savior. Not to just think things are tolerable. And even though we've had the birth of Christ, that, that provides us with an immense blessing. But more than that, we are still longing as before for the Lord to come. So look ahead, look behind, and yeah. then rejoice. So it's yeah. going to be a great season. Yeah. And that, I mean, that reminds me too. And then we can, we can talk about some more song lyrics here is, um, Christ came into the world in probably one of the darkest points in Israel's history, right? We've got Israel abandoning in many ways due to the effects of Hellenization. We have Israel abandoning the things that make her unique. Um, you know, not to get crass, but we have accounts in the first century of, of procedures to undo your circumcision so you could look more Greek. Um, you know, that's crazy. We joke about like, well, why were there pigs in Israel with the, the account of the, um, the swine rushing into the river? Well, there were pigs in Israel because people weren't keeping kosher and there was a market for it. Um, so Christ didn't come into um, a bright, cheery place. He came into a very spiritually dark and socially dark and dangerous world um, under, you know, a bloodthirsty ruler who would murder a bunch of babies just to stay in power. Right. Um, you know, I guess we could go off into a whole different kind of political commentary about Planned Parenthood <laughs> at that point. For, for sure. But you're right. The bottom line is when Christ comes in the world, he brings disruption. Yeah. And everywhere he goes, you see that disruption. This is what is so beautiful among many things about the gospel to me and about pondering it this season is our world primarily is concerned with rehabilitation. Like everywhere you look, there's somebody trying to market something to you to rehabilitate or improve some part of your life. And especially like this whole, the whole self-help genre. And I've often thought like, what if myself is awful? Like I don't want myself trying to help myself. Yeah. So I love that rather than rehabilitation, Jesus is concerned with regeneration. And that is perhaps the most life-changing thing, of course, uh, that can come out of him being obedient and dying on the cross and yeah. being risen again. Yeah, Jesus doesn't want to fix your heart. He wants to give you a new one. Exactly. And that's like, yeah. man, this is getting really cheesy now, but that's like the best Christmas gift ever. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it, it just came out. It, it it's all good. Yeah. It's all good. God bless us, everyone. I know. We need like a, a Tiny Tim uh, like quote in there somewhere. Yeah. How about this? <laughs> That's my Tiny Tim quote. It's just the coughing. So, so good. That's Tiny Tim yes. with the black lung. What did Tiny Tim even have? I don't know. He had a short Maybe. leg. Maybe. You know, know, well, it was London, right? right? They were in London. So maybe he was a chimney sweep. They used to send little kids. The little kids would go up the 
chimney. But that doesn't really work if he was like also crippled. Right. He probably wasn't running up the chimney. It's kind of interesting, but there always is the cough. So you're right on about that. That was whatever it was. Money could fix it, though. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So So, for the go ahead for this particular podcast, we asked the question: What is the strangest lyric in a Christmas song or carol? Do you have one in particular that comes to mind? Well, mine mine was taken in the the uh, thread, so I'll save it for later. What about you? I, so here's the thing. So many good responses to this question, which makes you understand or at least appreciate a little bit more how weird a lot of Christmas songs are. Like not yes. Christmas hymns and even some carols are totally on point. But there's some weird stuff that we say at this time of year that's just become like straight traditional or nostalgic. Yeah. So I have this taxonomy of Christmas songs and it used to just be two categories but i've added a third this year so there's like christmas hymns or like i guess we could say like like uh christmas worship songs so like you might get something that's not a hymn technically but a a worship song that has to do with christmas somehow and then there's kind of like the happy sappy spirit of the season family celebration kinds of songs and then there's just the really stupid weird songs that just don't they're just don't they don't make any sense and don't play them so that's like my three-tier taxonomy of Christmas songs. So I think we're going to need an example from each of those bad boys. Yeah. So like a Christmas hymn would be like, oh, holy night, right? Like okay, good theology, joy to the world, good, solid theology, good lyrics, ref- makes you reflect on Christmas. And then like um, Jingle Bells or um, I'll Be Home for Christmas. Like those are kinds of like the happy, sappy family, you know, spirit of the season things, which are fine. Like those are good things and they're okay to celebrate at this time of year. Um, especially like in a culture where people don't celebrate those things any other time of year. Um, you know, it, it, it warms my heart to hear people talking about how excited they are to see their family. Um, when other times of year, they don't seem to care about their family. And then like the third one would be, and I think a lot of the ones in this, uh, thread fall into the third category, but like Dominic, the donkey, or I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Those are the kinds of songs that I'm like, just don't, just don't bother. Grandma got songs. ran over by a reindeer. Yeah, yeah, like anti-family songs. Yeah, I didn't even think about the societal implications of that, but you're right. Yeah, yeah. So why don't we run through some of these? What what do we got in the group here? So there were several people. So I'd say some among the most popular, um, Jen Schwam and who else? My wife and. Jen Schwam is your wife. For those she who is my wife. That is factually correct. Uh, Josh Summer. Many people quoted, "He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake." Yeah, that yeah, that's a little weird. Is weird. Here's the thing about that: you put that in any other context, like any other old dude watching kids sleep and knowing when they're awake, and that is like straight up like SVU episode or something like that. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and just anybody watching you sleep and knowing when you're awake and then rewarding you based on your good behavior and punishing you based on your bad behavior, like that's some creepy stuff right there. That is some Santa legalism straight up. Yeah. Yeah, um, my lovely wife, who is uh, Ashley Arsenal, said, on the ninth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me nine ladies dancing. Um, I I think a lot of stuff in that is really weird. Um, (laughs) Yeah. How do you give someone 10 pipers piping? How do you give them lords a leaping? Um, 
a lot of the stuff in there is really weird. But Chuck, actually, Chuck Murphy, I'm going to give you a homework assignment. Um, he noted that he's heard it as an analogy for the different parts of the Christian faith, which I feel like maybe I heard that somewhere. But um, you have to research that now, Chuck, and tell me what. Yeah, you that'd find. be great. Yes. Here's what I do love about that song is because I work in finance. I should there should be like a, a game where you take a drink every time I say that. But um, <laughs> drink of water, right? Or grape yeah, juice? Drink, drink of water or juice. Yes. yes. Let's be clear yes. about that. Or eggnog. So. Ugh. Here is the thing about this. What I love about that song is uh, this uh, investment bank, Solomon Smith Barney, they took that concept. And have you heard of this? What they did, like, I don't know, it's like 20, 25 years ago, is they made an index out of it. So, like, this index is a basket of goods and services that people buy. And they track the price of those goods and services over time to see how things get more expensive and how it changes your purchasing power. So they have a 12 Days of Christmas index. And then every oh. year, about this time of year, they report on it. And they tell you which things in the 12 days have like increased in price substantially. And like they go all out. So like they look at, in this case for number nine, like the labor cost of the nine ladies dancing and healthcare and benefits and all that kind of good stuff. I would think that the, the going price of Lords of Leaping has probably increased dramatically Lords in the last Lords are not years. cheap. If no, you want to get them not. to leap, you got to pay off for that. Yeah, if you're going to get them to do anything, but especially leaping, I think they're gonna they're gonna charge you a pretty penny. Yeah, that's not cheap. So Robin Camp said, and I agree with this too. She's talking about jingle bells and the dashing through the snow, laughing all the way. Now you and I have actually been together, not just. Alone I was just going to talk other. about that, <laughs> but we have been together on a sleigh. I've been in a sleigh, like open open sleigh, horse drawn sleigh. Yes, a couple of times. And I will say she's right, because all I was thinking about is that my ears are about to fall off. It was so cold. Yes. Yeah, it was cold that year. Crazy cold. It was. And I forgot a hat. I had to borrow one from, like, the horse lady. It was weird, but I I didn't care at that point. I was like, give me that hat. (laughs) We do have a profound respect for people in all professions. So the horse lady is a term of endearment. (laughs) Yeah, I don't mean the lady was a horse. She was the lady who like like managed the horse. Maybe like the the horse woman or like the horse manager would be more appropriate. Oh, this is great. So some people reference songs that I'm not familiar with. So Benjamin Phillips quoted Tiny Fingers Reaching in the Night are the same hands that measured the sky. Are you familiar with that song? Is that I think that's a verse from that Mary Did You Know song, isn't it? Is it? I Let maybe it is. I think it is. My, so my favorite tweet so far this holiday season came from Mark Jones, Mark Jones call us, um, where he said, he just tweeted, Mary, did you know? And then dot, dot, dot. Um, yeah. Angels talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's a, it looks like it's a lyric from a Joy Williams song called here with us. Oh, okay. So it's one of those, uh, one of those instances where someone is saying something that at first blush looks really, really like profound and yes. Christological, but it actually doesn't work all that it's well. It's weird. It was a good call right there. Yeah. But I mean, we could, we could, we could probably force that into some good Christology if we needed to. So we'll, we'll put that in our back pocket for a different episode. Absolutely. Chuck Murphy, um, calls out probably one of my all time, uh, you can never unhear it moments in a song from baby. It's cold outside when she says, say what's in this drink and the whole song. Um, it literally sounds like a recipe for date rape. And I'm not trying to like minimize no, that. And maybe there should be like a trigger warning on this. Cause like, I know people who have had that happen, but like that song is terrible. I can't it's understand awful. how anybody 
doesn't see it. And the first time it was pointed out to me, I was like, oh, oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. This yeah, is it's really awful. bad. Make yeah. it stop. Yeah, we got to yes. talk about this. Cause, so here's my beef with this song as well. Why is this a Christmas song? Like, it's just a song about it being cold. Like, it could be a yeah. February song, too. It's just weird. The whole yeah. thing is so strange. But there are people that love that tune. Yeah, I mean, it's a catchy tune and like the back and forth kind of the antithetical thing is, I guess, is, is appealing. But yeah, the lyrics are just it's like a it's like a different age, like back in I don't know when it was written, but it seems like when that was written, that was like a totally OK, acceptable thing. But like in our context, no, just don't. If you have like a Christmas playlist at your church, just go through and scrub that right out of there. <laughs> like If that's playing in your prelude, you should tell somebody. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You should, you should replace that with something else immediately. Absolutely. So, uh, Jeff LaRoe wrote, uh, he's quoting from Away in a Manger, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And he's references that in contradiction to John eleven thirty five, which I believe is in Jesus wept. Jesus wept. So yeah. I believe that's like a, a docetism reference right there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Mark Jones, I think commented on that too. So um, Mark Jones Jesus obviously cried when he was a baby. So we don't have a record of him doing it, but he was a normal baby, just like any other baby. And I see no reason I think he didn't cry. So like Silent Night kind of falls under that. Like the whole song of Silent Night falls under that same kind of criticism. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of people bring that up. Just that it's interesting that we, we make such a big deal of that. This, the silence in particular. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let, let's talk about this hippo thing. Sure, let's do it. So there's a song called I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas, which after hearing the story about how this song came to be, it's actually quite adorable. But that sounds like the most terrifying Christmas present that I can actually think of is a hippopotamus. Yeah, like you see hippopotamuses in stores like little stuffed ones, and I suppose they seem adorable. But yeah. in my house, as you know, the hippo is not a very revered animal. For, right. from, through personal experience. So this is just, this strikes all kind of terror in my wife. Like she, she does not understand nor appreciate nor want to have anything to do with this piece of music. Um, I just had a terrifying Google is listening moment. So I am trying to look up etymology of hippopotamus and I typed etymology and it auto finished of hippopotamus <laughs> with me. So I think it's been listening to me. Um, so the, uh, the word hippopotamus means river horse. So I just wanted to point out that the correct uh, pluralization of hippopotamus would be hippopotamois, not hippopotamus. Really? Yes, because I, it comes from Greek, not from Latin. So I was tempted to go with the hippopotami, and then I just made it like I just butchered it and went straight to plural. But I like moist, although that makes yeah. me feel more uncomfortable with the whole it thing. It should. That's good, though. You it shouldn't be comfortable with hippopotamoi or moist. I, I also like, what did you call them? Like river horse? River horse, yeah. Hippo is is river. It's like we get the word hippodrome, like where the horses ran a race. And then uh, uh, Potomac is river. So like the Potomac River in Washington is literally like the river river. Man, this is educational all around. Yes. Should I, this should is I your drop? Reform Brotherhood, your linguistics podcast. Love it. Should I drop the hippo story real quick? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and drop the hippo story. Okay, so I have permission to say this. This story is my wife's. So my wife was in Africa, in Zimbabwe, on a missions trip with a large group of people. And they decided what something that would be really good as an experience would be to take a little canoe cruise down the Zambezi River. So it's a guided cruise. There's two or three to a canoe, and they have this long 
caravan of canoes and they're just cruising they're just chilling enjoying africa and of course the guides give them all like the normal disclosures like there's obviously wild animals uh, they're trying to alert them to the fact that everything in africa is dangerous a lot of things want to eat or kill you uh, but there's nothing in particular to be fearful about and i think somebody asked about uh hippopotamus because hippopotamus because they are present and they kind of made a big deal about it. it's very rare for them to um, attack people, which I'm not entirely sure if that's true now. But all that to say, they're cruising down the Zambezi River, this long caravan. And my wife sees, uh, as well as some of the guides, that the this large hippopotamus is approaching their caravan. And they're saying not to worry. They're speaking to them in English. They're, you know, they're having a good time. They're talking back and forth. And it continues to get closer. And then all of a sudden it disappears under the water. And she was just thinking, is perhaps just curious about what's going on. So she said she gets worried when all of the guides begin to speak like in rushed, hushed tones and not in English anymore. And then all of a sudden, basically, this giant hippopotamus comes up in the water in the canoe ahead of my wife, where actually the pastor of the church we were attending, he and his wife were in. And just straight up flips the canoe, like throws it into the air and spills everybody out into the water. And then just pandemonium breaks loose. So the guides in my wife's canoe and the other ones start slapping the water. And my wife interprets this as if like they are beating back the hippopotamus because <laughs> it is trying to like eat them all up like a Twinkie. Uh, what they're actually doing is just trying to scare it, just trying to move everybody away. So she literally thought people were just getting eaten alive, that the pastor had just like gone to glory because the hippopotamus had it literally, like it literally dented this giant metal canoe, like just, just bent it in half almost. So they all got over. Luckily, everybody was okay, fortunately. I guess that was enough for the hippo. It was like, I had my fun and I'm peacing out. Yeah. Um, but they all the got hippo over. Really- the hippo really was like on the shore and it leaned over to its hippo friend. I was like, hey, watch this. <laughs> it it did seem like that because it came out of nowhere. And I guess the guides were like, nobody has been attacked by a hippo in such like a, at least in that particular area in such a long period of time it's that crazy. it was really kind of like a, a freak thing. But so the best part is like, you know, the pastor and his wife and their guy, they're like, they're all soaked. Everybody's shaken up because this happened quick. It was loud. It was terrifying. I mean, it was an animal yeah. attack and hippos are huge animals. Yeah. Um, so they all get over to the side. They're on the embankment now. Like people are like crying. I mean, it's really traumatizing. It's not that funny, but it is funny in hindsight to me. So they're, they're crying. And then my favorite part of this story is they're all like sitting on this bank. People are weeping. They're hugging each other. Like they're just praising Jesus for his protection. And like floating by in like this slow pontoon is just like a large group of Korean tourists who are just taking tons of pictures. Just cruising by. <laughs> Now I've I've your wife has told me this story in person and she gets this sort of like like uh like flashback look on her face oh, like yeah. I would imagine like somebody telling a story from a war they've been in. Oh she yeah, she gets this like is, nervous when she's telling the story. This is no joke. Like if I think to myself, can I make a hippo joke today? The answer is always too soon. No. And this happened yeah, like soon. 5 or 6 years ago or longer than that, like yeah, man, almost 10 crazy. years ago. So we'll I'll uh, post a link uh, in the show notes if you go to the website reformbrotherhood.wordpress.com, um, and you'll see a video of a hippo chasing a boat like a motorboat. It's crazy. Um, and it's it's insane, and you will never ever ask for a hippopotamus for Christmas again. I promise you. 
It's crazy. Yeah, it'll totally change your change your life. So it definitely is. that for me is a, a super strange song and one that just strikes terror in my heart after hearing that story. Yeah. So I, I think that probably wraps us up. Before we go, though, um, do you have any recommendations? I don't in particular, except that, again, I would just encourage everybody to embrace the season in a new way. Like, like spend some time meditating even before the Lord, how he might consider for you to prepare your heart, prepare your family. And try to push out on that a little bit and do something different this year than last year that you think would be really helpful to your spiritual condition. And I, I hope that maybe considering something like Advent, especially if it's not a tradition you're very familiar with, that that might be the kind of thing that would help prepare us all a little bit better to really just be able to like marinate in the joy of Christmas beyond just the good times and the nice songs and everybody having a much more pleasant demeanor and a better attitude that we would really root that in the hope and love of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. So I have two recommendations. Um, I One of the things I do with the church calendar is um, during the season of Lent, which is 40 plus a few odd days, and the season of Advent, which is about 28-ish days, depending on when Christmas falls, um, I take a smaller, shorter book on a particular theme and I read through it. So like right now I'm reading through On the Incarnation by Athanasius to kind of prepare for Christmas. Um, the book I would recommend for our readers, um, which I know you're, I don't know if you finished it yet, but I know you're reading, is Knowing Christ by uh, Mark Jones. So good. And um, there's so many amazing things in the book, but it's really devotional. Um, the, the chapters are short, so you can read through a chapter kind of in one sitting. Um, there's like a thousand chapters, but they're all pretty short. Um, and I have a personal recommendation for Mark Jones. Uh, get an audio book out because I would love to recommend your book in this next totally prepared uh, advertisement that we're going to do. But um, it's it's a great book. Um, I can't recommend it enough. I'm probably going to try to read through it again here a second time in a, a, a month or so here. Uh, but it really, I mean, it really will change your devotion and your your love for Christ, which is um, what he said kind of the goal of the book is, is to arouse your affections for Christ, which I know for me it really did that. Me too. Um, so, Mark, I need you to, to make an audio book of that so I can listen to it on the Where way. Where are you at, Mark Jones? Yeah. So get on that um, in between all of the other thousand books you're writing and all sorts of stuff. Um, but uh, I do have a recommendation for Audible. So we have a free trial of, uh, of Audible available for you if you go to uh, audibletrial.com slash brotherhood. Yep, I think that's it. Hold on. Audibletrial.com slash brotherhood. And um, there's a couple different Christmas books. There's a lot of Christmas books on there. Most of them look like they're probably pretty terrible. But um, there's a book called The Dawning of Indestructible Joy, Daily Readings for Advent, which was originally written by uh, John Piper. So um, you can go to that audibletrial.com slash brotherhood, and you get a one-month trial, which comes with a free book. Um, and you could download this and listen to it on your way to work for Advent. And I've listened to a, uh, I listened to the sample online, um, and it's just really a good, solid um, way to have some devotions in your ear while you're driving to kind of redeem that time that you otherwise might be, you know, sitting in the car listening to stupid songs like Dominic the Donkey um, or that weird song about the people that run into each other in the grocery store and drink beer in the car. Um, all these weird Christmas songs that come out this time of oh, year. Christmas shoes. Um, I just thought about Christmas shoes. Christmas Sorry. shoes. The, the Christmas shoes song. There's all sorts of terrible stuff. But instead of listening to those terrible songs, you could be listening 
listening to devotions written by John Piper. So um, again, audibletrial.com slash brotherhood. And if you sign up for a free trial, uh, Jesse and I get some funds to um, help forward the podcast a little bit. Thank you all. This has clearly become the, the Mark Jones version of this podcast. Yes. We should probably say that he's a pastor with the PCA at Faith Vancouver. And yes. um, he is probably my favorite Canadian. Yes, I love that he's in the Presbyterian Church America in Canada. I Are love you that. sure it's PCA? I think so. I'm pretty think sure the it is. church is Faith Vancouver PCA. Maybe it's like Presbyterian Canada Association. Mark Jones, you can't have our denominations. Make your own yes. PCC. A. <laughs> wow. All right, that should probably just about do it before we offend any more uh, kind, generous, gentle Canadians. Uh, Although I will say, uh, I saw a picture on Mark Jones' Facebook. Uh, I guess he was at the Banner of Truth Conference, which happens very near you, so you should go. Um, And they did a Presbyterians versus Baptist soccer game. And I guess he scored like 15 goals, which if you follow soccer is a ridiculous amount of goals. That is awesome. We clearly just sound like Mark Jones fanboys at this point. Well, that's because we are Mark Jones fanboys. (laughs) Mark Jones, call us. Yes. All right. Well, that should just about do it. Do you have any final thoughts, Jesse? No, that's it for me. All right. Well, if we don't, uh, if we don't see you again, what was I going to say? We don't see anybody <laughs> again. All right. Well, I guess that's the note we're going to end on. All right. Have a good week and uh, get out there and think about the coming of Christ and preparing our hearts. Uh, what if I'm